This is the word of God. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.' He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we again come into your presence, acknowledging our need of the Holy Spirit as we come to hear your word. Father, as the hymn writer said, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Lord comes down. And we do not desire to have a vain hearing of your word this morning. For the promise of your word is that your word will go forth and will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose of for which you have sent it forth. And so we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand, wills that obey, and affections that are stirred up 
for more love for you, our God, as we hear what the Spirit has to say to your church. Set before us Jesus Christ. May we see more of who he is and be conformed more into his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Disney's National Treasure movies draw us into the adventure because of the way in which they use well-known documents, architectural structures, and historical places to weave a story that fires our imaginations. Who doesn't enjoy seeing places and items unlock hidden secrets that leads to great treasure? I suppose sometimes as people read the Old Testament, it can feel like studying an ancient document to unlock its hidden clues that lead to treasure. But for many of us, we struggle trying to figure out the necessary code to unlock the mysteries of the Old Testament. Is it something in the numbers? Is it something by way of allegory? How does one discover the riches which Scripture promises to God's people and what riches are promised to God's people? Well, Scripture itself tells us what we need to know to unlock the Old Testament and the wealth of practical wisdom which it offers the people of God. We need to know the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You remember uh, how Luke 24 tells us that Jesus taught those two disciples on the road to Emmaus what Scripture had to reveal concerning Jesus. And Luke 24 tells us that Jesus began with Moses and interpreted to them what Scripture taught concerning himself. Well, this morning we come to one of those texts that surely must have been mentioned in that conversation on that day on the road to Emmaus. The symbolism of Genesis 9 is highly significant. We see pictures and themes in this chapter which Scripture will repeatedly highlight as the increasing revelation concerning Jesus Christ becomes clearer and clearer. As we look at this picture of Jesus in Genesis 9, we learn certain truths which have an immense practical application in our everyday lives and in the society in which we live. This is no chapter to simply fire the imagination so we can enjoy a good story. This is a chapter which changes our lives. For the truth which Genesis 9 teaches us is this. Because Jesus has brought the covenant blessing of God to all ethnicities, God calls us to promote the peace of his covenant by proclaiming God's salvation and standards. Because Jesus has brought the covenant blessing of God to all ethnicities, God calls us to promote the peace of his covenant by proclaiming God's salvation and God's standards. And we'll see four pictures in this chapter which reveal to us this salvation and the standards which God sets before us and calls us to promote and proclaim. First, we'll notice God's image. Second, we'll see God's bow. Third, we'll look at God's vineyard. And fourth, we'll consider God's dwelling. God's image, God's bow, God's vineyard, and God's dwelling. So first, consider with me God's image. We see this in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 9. 
God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. These opening verses in Genesis 9 give to us a new world order. And no, not the kind of new world order of which politicians or conspiracy theorists speak. They give to us the order of the world after the flood. How will things operate? What rules will govern humanity and the animal kingdom? And as we consider these verses, our minds should be drawn back to the familiar account in Genesis 1, where God creates the world and God sets forth mandates that will govern the perfect creation which he has made. In many ways, what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, the the commands, the standards are the same, but there are some key differences. As God's image bearers, the essence of humanity's task after the flood remains the same as it was back in Genesis 1. They are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They produce life in a way which imitates God's gift of life to creation. They go forth and they they produce image bearers of God. That's the blessing which God has given to humanity since the creation of the world, and it's unchanged today, same pre-flood and post-flood. As image bearers of God, humanity still exercises stewardship over God's creation. But as they rule over the earth post-flood, we begin to see some differences between the language of Genesis 9 and the language of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 deals with an idyllic world of God's paradise. Humanity rules over creation and subdues it. But nothing is said of fear and dread being the characteristics of humanity's rule over creation. But now in Genesis 9, the animal world has a fear and dread of humanity. In verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and all the creeping things. A reminder to us of how the fall in Genesis 3 has changed the relationship of humanity to the rest of the world. Even with those animals classified as man's best friend, there is fear and dread. I don't know how many of you know my uh, in-law's white Labrador uh, named Oliver. Oliver and I have a wonderful love-hate relationship with each other. Pretty sure he's still jealous that I came and took Cheyenne away from him. He still sulks. Every time I walk in the house and sit down next to her, he just pouts. At times, Oliver and I get along great, though. We've gone on runs on the beach. We go on runs in the neighborhood up here. But there are other times that Oliver absolutely frays my nerves, like the time that they, they came down to visit, and Oliver was in the garage in our house. Our garage borders my bedroom, and Oliver decided to start barking at about 5.45 in the morning, and, uh, and he wouldn't stop. So I finally got up around 6.15 because nobody else decided to get up. So I got up around 6.15 and took him for a run, and that run was not characterized by peace and harmony between us. That run was characterized by a fear and dread of humanity. (laughs) That's our relationship with the animal world. 
Another difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9 is seen with the food that is mentioned. In Genesis 1, the food mentioned for both humanity and the animals is every green herb of the field and fruit of the trees. In Genesis 9, that command's expanded. Humanity is given divine permission to eat meat. As God gave the green plants for food, now he gives everything. Another reminder of the difference between a pre-fall and post-fall creation. Most likely, humanity ate meat after the fall and before the flood. So the difference between Genesis 9 and Genesis 1 isn't so much a, a difference of pre-flood and post-flood. It's a difference between the idyllic garden paradise of God and the fallen creation into which humanity's sin had plunged the world. Stewardship over creation. But a stewardship now characterized by fear, dread, and death in humanity's interactions with the animal kingdom. But as we consider this stewardship of humanity over creation, we come to the heart of these opening verses Neither humanity nor the animal world can take the life of a human being. God says that he will require a reckoning from both man and animals for any human who is murdered. That word reckoning carries the idea of an, an exact compensation. In these verses, we see what is known as the lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation, where the punishment resembles the offense in degree and kind. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, as Leviticus will say, a life for a life. In this statement of Genesis 9, in this new world order given by God, there are practical implications for how and when society implements capital punishment. And why this, why this particular statement? Why has God given this law to humanity? Well, a couple of reasons. You, you remember the first heinous crime after the fall. One of those Bible stories that we love to teach our kids, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. Well, here's a law to deal with those who murder their brothers. The world's not going to be permitted to descend into that pre-flood violence that you can read of in, in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and Genesis 6. For God has given society the ability to carry out just punishments designed to curb violence and murder. The primary reason that God has given this law to humanity is because of what verse 6 says. God made man in his own image. Here's the distinction between humanity and the animals, no matter what PETA says. Animals can be killed for food. Humans may not be murdered. Humanity, even fallen post-flood humanity with all of the faults and failures of, of life and creation and everything else that has gone on is still in the image of God. Still unique. Still exalted. God created man in his own image. And man remains in the image of God. And so here in this, in this first image, this first picture in Genesis 9, the image of God we see being preserved through the flood, provided for by the, by the food, the sustenance which God gives, and protected from unjust violence by God himself. Here's the life which we as God's people are to promote in society and in this world by the way in which we live. We preserve life, we provide for life, and we protect life. God's image. Second, notice with me, God's bow. Verses 8 through 17. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. 
Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Here we have the covenantal language behind all of God's actions that happened during the flood. And so, flood comes, wipes out humanity, but Noah and his family, they're preserved in the ark. The picture there of the, the covenantal salvation of God's people preserved in the ark that is Jesus Christ, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3. And all of this is because of God's covenant. And so as humanity emerges into this post-flood world, here we have the covenantal guarantees that will govern this new creation. Verse 9 tells us that God establishes his covenant with Noah. This is not a brand new covenant. This is a covenant which is unfolding throughout Scripture's record of God's redemptive history. God's affirming and making clearer what he has already said and guaranteed to humanity. This covenant has universal implications. It will bring good news for all creation. The judgment of God in the flood is is past and will never return. Peace has come to the earth. The peace of a new creation. Isaiah refers to this peace in Isaiah 54, verses 8-14, through as he paints a picture of a sin-weary people who are brought to peaceful security and comfort in God's salvation. God says in Isaiah 54, "...an overflowing anger for a moment." I hid my face from you. Overflowing anger. Here's a picture of the flood. God's judgment flowing over the world. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Again, think of Noah for all those days in the ark, storm-tossed all over the earth. Here are God's people, tossed by the storms of a life, dealing dealing with sin's destruction. O afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you will be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. A picture of the security, the the established city, the the, the prosperity, the wealth, just the the, the happiness of life for these storm-tossed and afflicted people as, as God's peace comes upon them. Well, in Genesis 9, this peaceful comfort and security is seen in the covenantal sign which God gives, the, the bow which he sets in the clouds. It's unfortunate and more it's just a down, downright from the pit of hell that the rainbow has been hijacked by the LGBTQ plus community and the society in which we live. I actually saw it on the way this morning, so I imagine Olympia is much the same way as Portland and, and Vancouver area. You drive around and you see rainbow flags everywhere. 
the rainbow of Genesis 9, the, the rainbows which we still have today after rainstorms, they're signs of acceptance and beauty and happiness and harmony, just not for any of the reasons which the LGBTQ plus community teaches. The word for bow in Genesis 9, that, that rainbow that we think of in the sky, is the same word that's translated battle bow in other passages of Scripture. The rainbow is a sign that God is no longer at war with creation. There is acceptance. It's, it's, it's a sign of the beauty of the new creation after God's judgment. It's, it's a sign of the happiness that is upon humanity, the harmony in this world. But it's all because God's no longer at war with creation. The arrows of God's deluge, the flood which he fired at the earth, will not be fired again. God's ceased his campaign of judgment in the flood. The strife's over. The, the war is done. The bow has been hung up in the clouds. A sign of God's peace and the world's security from further destruction by a flood because God has covenantally sworn not to destroy the world again with the flood of God's judgment. 2 Peter 3 reminds us that God will judge the world again in fire, but not with the flood. God hangs up his bow. God sees the bow. God saw creation in Genesis 1, and as he saw creation, Scripture tells us creation was very good. God saw creation in Genesis 6, and creation was very corrupt. Well, now we see God seeing again. God sees the bow in Genesis 9, and creation is at peace with its creator. And God says he will remember his everlasting covenant. Verse 15, verse 14, when I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. When scripture says that God remembers, it's, it's not speaking of his memory as if he's forgotten something. It is a declaration that God will act to uphold his covenant promises. God sees the bow and God is no longer angry. He's at peace. He has bestowed his steadfast love upon his people and upon creation, which he has remade. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see why it is important not to lose the symbolism of that bow in the clouds, no matter what society decides to do and no matter how much they decide to distort that picture, whether to something as trivial as a brand of candy, which invites you to taste the rainbow in the colors of the Skittles, which, by the way, I love Skittles, nothing against Skittles, or to something as diabolical as a lying agenda from the pit of hell itself that seeks to subvert the very message of the bow into a lifestyle which does not bring peace with God. It brings judgment from God. The bow in the clouds. A, a picture, but more than a picture, of covenantal sign of God and the peace which is offered through his salvation and the ark of Jesus Christ that preserves us through the judgment waters of God's wrath. God's image, God's bow. Third, notice with me God's vineyard. Verse 18. Sons of Noah go forth. Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons of Noah, from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. What would, be, what would the post-flood world be like? You familiar with the stories at the beginning of Genesis. Think of what all has happened in Genesis up to this point. Humanity 
since Genesis 3 has descended into violence and chaos. The world has been unmade by the flood and then remade after the flood. Scripture says that before the flood, it was difficult for humanity to work the ground. Thorns and thistles, painful toil of humanity's labors. And while there are still thorns and thistles in the post-flood world, what we see Noah doing demonstrates that some measure of relief has been granted to humanity. The the grammar is clear. Noah's post-flood accomplishments here in verse 20 are something that are brand new in this world. Never before had someone successfully planted a vineyard. Your footnote in the ESV makes this clear. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. Noah, whose, whose name means rest, he's the man of rest as his father had declared in Genesis 5. And he declared that Noah would be the man of rest for Noah would bring relief from the painful toil of our hands. Now here's Noah, but, and he grows a vineyard. And not only does he grow a vineyard, he learns to produce wine from that vineyard. Wine, that drink which, as Scripture records, gladdens the heart and brings comfort to people. So here's here's a picturesque vineyard that brings comfort and joy to a new creation that has endured the sorrows of sin. And at first it seems like we have a new Eden emerging. Another idyllic paradise in this vineyard planted by this new Adam-like figure in Noah. But just like that first paradise, this vineyard unravels oh so quickly. Noah drinks too much wine and gets drunk. And on top of that, Noah exposes himself. Drunkenness and nudity. The last time scripture referenced humanity's nakedness was in Genesis 3, right after the fall. As Adam and Eve realized their shameful condition that that, that they had been brought into by their sin. And now here's Noah, his sin brings shame. And his sin is compounded by his son Ham, just as Adam and Eve's sin was compounded by their son Cain. Scripture records that Ham saw Noah's nakedness. The word for saw, it's not a, it's not a harmless glance. It's not an accidental occurrence. The word carries the idea of looking at something searchingly. And for someone's nakedness to be exposed to the gaze of another in Scripture was to be vulnerable to that person. You had no protection. They gained the advantage over you. They dishonored you. Think of the story of David's servants who were taken by the Moabites and had half their beards shaven off and had half their garments cut off, exposing them to shame and dishonor. As one commentator said, Ham's sin is in essence this. He was guilty of an uncouth demeanor and a lack of respect towards his father. And in Noah's drunken nakedness and in Ham's leering gaze, this idyllic vineyard is spoiled. The comfort and joy of the wine of this vineyard is gone. Now there's only shame, dishonor, moral failure, lack of self-control, loss of respect, and all the accompanying consequences of sin. A vineyard with so much promise and now spoiled by sin. The vineyard would become a regularly occurring picture in the history of God's people. Go home this afternoon and you can read Psalm 80. Psalm 80 declares that the people to whom Genesis 9 was written, the Israelites under Moses, were a vine which God had brought out of Egypt, a new vineyard which God had planted in Canaan. 
but that vineyard did not last. The walls were broken down, Psalm 80 says, and the beasts of the field ravaged that vineyard just as sin had ravaged Noah's vineyard. And in many ways, the peacefulness of the covenant sign of the bow in the clouds was tarnished by sin's emergence in this post-flood world. And we're left longing for an eternal peace and a new vineyard planted by a perfect gardener that brings forth a wine which cannot be corrupted and distorted by sin. Wine which brings true comfort, lasting comfort, unending joy to God's people. Where in this remade world would humanity find someone in God's image who would come and bring God's peace and plant a new vineyard which could not be corrupted by sin? Well, Noah tells us in the closing verses of Genesis 9, we've seen God's image, God's bow, and God's vineyard. Fourth, consider with me God's dwelling. Verse 24 When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah pronounces a curse and a blessing here at the end of Genesis 9. The curse in these verses is a curse upon Canaan. His destiny is to be the most abject kind of servant to his brothers. He would be subjugated by the descendants of Shem. And we see the fulfillment of this curse in the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. But the main focus in these verses is upon the blessing. And it merits our close consideration for here in this blessing we have the heart of the Noahic covenant. Notice where the blessing starts. Blessed be the Lord. Shem's blessing and Japheth's benefit from Shem's blessing is only a blessing because the Lord himself is the one from whom all blessings flow. Blessed be the Lord. And you notice that's the all capital Lord. Blessed be the I am, the God of the covenant. Blessed be the God who makes a covenant of peace with his people. Blessing starts with the God of the covenant. And the next statement by Noah narrows down how this blessing will be manifested in this world. Back in Genesis 9 verse 9, God promised to establish the covenant with Noah and his offspring. That word for offspring is the same word that's translated back in Genesis 3 verse 15 as seed. And and when it references the seed of the woman. Here we have a continuation of the promise of the seed of the woman in the Noahic covenant. The seed of the woman who would reverse the curse will come from Shem. How do we know this? Well, Noah says in verse 26 that God will, or in verse 27, that God will enlarge Japheth and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. Who is the he to which Noah refers? Well, it can be one of two people grammatically. It can be Japheth. Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Or it can be God. God will dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, as Scripture unfolds, we understand that theologically, it makes sense that this is God who will dwell 
in the tents of Shem. This is the covenant promise that we see in the tabernacle and the temple. Which again, remember when the book of Genesis is written. It's written by Moses to the Israelites who have come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written at the same time to this group of people who had just received what? The tabernacle. That promise that the dwelling place of God would be among the descendants of Shem. That God would pitch his tent among the tents of Shem. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. God dwelling in the tents of Shem. What's true for Shem in that verse is also true for Canaan. It says Canaan will be his servant. That his can either refer to Shem or God, grammatically. But if the first hymn refers to God, then this hymn also refers to God. Canaan will be the servant of God. And in Canaan, we see the other seed that's mentioned back in Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the serpent. Here is God's covenant promise that the God who comes to dwell among Shem will subjugate and defeat the seed of the serpent. And who benefits from the subjugation of the serpent's seed in this dwelling place of God among Shem? Well, Japheth the one from whom all the Gentiles will descend. And in these closing verses, we have a glorious picture of the salvation which God Himself will bring down to His people, a people who will be gathered in from every ethnicity. But it's not just in the closing verses that we see this. This is the entire chapter of Genesis 9. For Colossians 1, as we come to the New Testament, Colossians 1 reminds us that Jesus is the one who is perfectly in God's image. Hebrews 1 tells us that He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And as the one in God's image, Hebrews 1 goes on to say, He upholds the world and governs it, preserving it, exercising sovereign control over all its affairs. And in exercising sovereign control over creation, God protects God's image bearers, or Jesus protects God's image bearers. He preserves God's image bearers, and He provides for God's image bearers both as the head over his church and as the king over the whole world. Here's Jesus, the true image of God. 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that in Jesus we are a new creation that is reconciled to God. We're a new creation that is at peace with God. God's arrows of wrath embedded themselves in Jesus as he hung upon the cross so that we might be at peace with God. God's bow is hung up. He's no longer at war with us. We're reconciled to God. In John 15, Jesus declares that He is the true vine, the true vineyard. He's the master gardener who has planted that new vineyard. And His blood, that blood of the new covenant, that cup of wine of which we will drink in a moment at the Lord's Supper, is a wine which reverses the tragedy and the shame and the guilt and the dishonor of sin. It's a wine which brings joy and comfort to his sin-weary, storm-tossed, afflicted people who have not been comforted. But now, in this new wine from this new vineyard, there is comfort and joy. And Jesus, as John 1 tells us, came down to tabernacle to dwell in a tent among men. He's the embodiment of what Noah declares in Genesis 9, that God will dwell in the tents of Shem. 
And who benefits? Who benefits from this perfect image who has come down to make peace and a new creation and who has given a new wine in His blood and has dwelt among us? Who benefits? Well, the book of Acts tells us that many of Shem's descendants believed Jesus and were saved. Acts also tells us many of Japheth's descendants embraced the good news of Jesus as the message was given to the Gentiles. Acts even tells us of Ham's descendants, like the Ethiopian eunuch, benefiting from God's salvation. And Romans 8 reminds us that all creation will rejoice when the sons of God are revealed and the new creation is ushered in. All humanity and all creation benefiting from this perfect image of God who has brought peace and planted a new vineyard that makes His people rejoice and be comforted in their deliverance from sin's burden and who as God in in human flesh will dwell forever with His people in that new creation. An image, a bow, a vineyard, and a dwelling place. Four pictures with one united glorious proclamation. Life, in Jesus. It's a proclamation that we're to speak from our mouths to our neighbors, family, friends. But this is the life, this is the proclamation which we now come to see in another picture. In the bread and in the wine at the table of Jesus Christ. And eating and a drinking that this morning as we come to the table brings comfort and joy to God's people as we reflect over the peace that we have through the perfect image of God who has come to set us free from sin's bondage. So let's come around this table and eat and drink and proclaim this message which we have heard from God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the proclamation that has gone forth in our midst, both from your word and from the table of our Lord. May you help us to go forth and not have just been hearers of the word this morning, but that we would go forth and be doers of the word which we have heard. May we take the message of your salvation and your standards that proclaim your covenant of peace in Jesus, and share it with all those with whom we meet. May your Spirit seal your word to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.